Hi everyone, I'm Lee Savile Iksik, and this is the Artsbound Podcast, where I speak with professionals from across the performing arts industries to capture bits of wisdom, insight, and inspiration for students and young professionals exploring careers in music, theater, and dance. Today, I'm speaking with Gerald Savage, who is a music educator in the Pittsburgh public school system, as well as a sound therapist, also known as a sound healer. Being that sound therapy is lesser known as a profession, we spend most of our time talking about this part of his work. And we've arranged the episode in a slightly different order than our conversation, Starting first with the practical nature of working with clients, and then later getting into the more theoretical foundations of the practice. Here's my conversation with Gerald. Hi, Gerald. Good afternoon, Lee. Thank you so much for being on the show. We're, uh, I'm really excited to, to chat with you. I'm very excited to be here. Thank you for asking me. Yeah. So in the intro, I talked a little bit about uh, just the few pieces of of your professional pie, uh, the things that you do in terms of your work in the performing arts. But why don't you uh, just tell us a little bit more detail about um, specifically what you do as a sound healer and also your work at Pittsburgh Kappa. Okay, yes, I'll start with Pittsburgh Kappa. Uh, I've been in the Pittsburgh public schools now for Wow, 29 years, I think. Wow. And uh, my path started off many, many years ago under Google, which is now Google, I should say, and it was Reisenstein Middle School. <laughs> so that was my very first job uh, with the Pittsburgh Public Schools. I moved here from Detroit. I had a little bit limited background in teaching there as a student teacher uh, in the Pittsburgh, I'm sorry, the, the Detroit School District, and then came here. Uh, Worked for a little while, uh, believe it or not, Presley Ridge, which I don't know if you're familiar with Presley Ridge on the north side. I established a music program there, which I always had this interest in working with uh, children who were not considered to be, I guess you should say, quote unquote, normal. You know, children who might have emotional issues, mental issues. And so I ended up starting there and eventually transferred uh, to uh, the Pittsburgh Public Schools, where my first job was, as I said before, at Reisenstein. I worked there for a few years and transferred, took a year off to work on my doctoral degree and then transferred to Frick International Studies Academy, which now is SciTech, and then came back to Reisenstein, but it had changed because you had, Shinley was closing down, Shinley High School. Uh, you had... Uh, the new Obama school, was, which was getting established there. Uh, you had some of the students from Frick. So I used to call it Friction Sign because you had students from Frick, Shinley at the Reisenstein building. <laughs> and I worked there for a few more years before I finally uh, got the position at Pittsburgh Kappa 6 through 12. And I've been there now for nine years. Uh, I took over from Linda Ross Brown, who actually used to be at um, Westinghouse, she was at Westinghouse, and then she retired, and I was able to go into that position uh, as department coordinator for the vocal department. And at the same time, Henry Biggs, who was another teacher there in middle school, he retired the same year as Linda did, so it was this whole new vamping, revamping of, of Pittsburgh Kappa, and eventually because of uh, 
staff layoffs. Then I ended up taking over both the middle school and the high school choirs. And then I did really ended up taking over two positions. <laughs> so since they left, I've been really doing what two people used to do. But that's not a complaint, actually. That's been a very, very powerful experience to be able to work with all the children simply because one thing that happens at Kappa is you, they establish a cultural routine in middle school. They go to high school and it's a different culture, different routine, mm-hmm. different teachers. And so now I have been able to establish a rapport and a long-term relationship with both the middle school and the high school students. And and when I was in public school, I had the same scenario and I, I really reveled in the fact that I could build a relationship with students over seven years. Uh, it was, yeah. Let's so, very powerful. Mm-hmm. What's so different is that having worked in a tiny, tiny school district out in central PA, um, the, you know, just hearing you move from one school to the next and schools are closing and merging and um, is very different from, uh, from our schools, you know, what I experienced at Loyal Sock where we had two buildings in the entire district and, um, yeah. Uh, and, and I should, uh, I realized I, I used the, the acronym, but for listeners who don't know, uh, uh, Pittsburgh Kappa stands for the creative and performing arts. So, um, why, what, um, what do students go to Kappa for? It's a magnet school, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's a magnet school with six different programs, which they all have to audition for to get in. So you have instrumental music, vocal music, uh, you have a theater program. You ha- and by the way, theater in- incorporates both the dramatic aspect of it as well as musical theater. Mm. And you have the arts department, which is a visual arts program. You have a dance department. You have a literary arts department because writing is considered to be an art, even though students take English and literature and so forth. And then you also have a pro-tech program, students who work behind the scenes in terms of lighting, sound, and that sort of Yeah. So in addition to your teaching at Kappa, which is um, a full-time teaching gig, and, and as I know and as you know, it's it's often more than a full-time full-time gig, uh, you do work as a sound healer. And tell us about um, when did you get into that? What brought you into that? And and maybe just what is sound healing? I think a lot of people have probably heard of music therapy. Um, and this is different. So how is it different? That's a very good question. First of all, to address that question about music therapy versus sound healing. Now, obviously, music therapy is an established music major. For instance, we have one here in Pittsburgh at Duquesne University. They have a program also at Slippery Rock, I hear. Uh, and there are other programs around. But it is an established uh, practice that is accepted in colleges and universities. And primarily what is done is in terms of looking at various issues that people might have uh, psycho-emotionally and how these can be addressed through music. And I must say not only psycho-emotional, but also in terms of uh, movement and, 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 mm-hmm. and people who have issues with with walking or people who have issues with using their limbs, you know, this kind of thing. So those are approaches that you find in music therapy to address those kind of issues. The primary thing that makes sound therapy different is that you're looking at music 
from a deeper scientific standpoint, and even as a person who studies music, you know, you look at pitch and you look at these combination of pitches and you have to learn how to read the music. You have to learn basic music theory, that kind of thing. Whereas sound therapy actually looks at each one of those things as a part of the modality. So for instance, we as music majors typically are never taught about uh, the overtone series, or at least we're taught about it in this in a, on a very surface basis. You know, there's right. not much that's said about that. But if you look deeper at, for instance, the tuning system that you you find in Western European culture, which is this a part of what we uh, belong to here when we talk about music tradition, because obviously the primary thing that we learn in music here is Western European music. It all goes back to Bach. Yeah, right. It goes back to Bach. Yeah. <laughs> and then, of course, Bach came up with this system of um, well-tempered tuning, you know, and then we can yeah. play all this music in 12 different keys. However, even when you look at Bach and you look at the piano, it is structured in such a way so it's equal distance between every one of the keys, mm-hmm. half step. But when you look at the actual DNA, of sound, which I call the overtone series. The reason I call it the, the DNA of sound, because anybody who speaks, anybody who sings, any sound that makes a frequency has exactly the same structure. It's pretty amazing. You know, the same overtone series where you have an octave, uh, you have a fifth, you have a fourth, you have a third, and so on and so forth. For people who are in music, they'll know what I'm talking about. And then when it gets to certain pitches and you try to equate those pitches with the piano that we have, those pitches don't match at all. Right. So we then have something different than just pitch. We have frequency. So frequencies are something that could be pitch oriented. We could call it a pitch. So for instance, our Western European system is based on a 440. However, there are many people, for instance, who are into the sound healing, sound therapy community who see 432 as being more accurate is that we actually should probably be using 432 as opposed to 440. Nevertheless, 432 and 440 are both considered to be A. So there reaches a point where a certain frequency may be beneficial and you call it A, but another frequency might be used for something else. It's still called an A, but it's not important as to whether it's called an A. Could you give an example, just like a practical, like why would someone seek out your service as a sound healer? Like what are they experiencing? What's ailing them? And how do you go about determining what type of frequency, what type, you know, how is that, that uh, diagnosis and application of, you know, vibration and frequency of sound actually used to, to solve someone's ailment? Okay, so I'm glad that you asked that question, and I will answer first of all by saying I don't diagnose anything. Oh, well, sure, sure, sure. Well, that's important to say because when when you actually do this kind of work, you have to make it very clear that you're not a medical doctor, you're not a health care practitioner, because that can get you in a lot of trouble, you know, because people are saying, well, he diagnosed me with whatever, you know, and that that was a misdiagnosis, even though we know that medical doctors do that all the time. (laughs) But... um, Anyway, so I actually work with a program. This is a thing that really distinguishes me from most sound therapists, sound healers, as we're called. And that is the assessment tool. 
So I have a tool that I use, which is simply with a microphone. Uh, the person will answer three questions, and those three questions then will be translated into what's called a voice print, which will have various uh, frequencies within that voice print based on the chromatic scale. So a person once again doesn't know about the piano, that would be all the white keys and all the black keys within what we call an octave from C, C. And if you know anything about music, you know it's just a cycle, it keeps repeating over and over again, higher frequencies. So once that person does that, um, the voice prints, then we look at the voice print, we analyze it, and we see where the bars are very high. There are different color bars for each one of the frequencies. And people can go on my website, www.soundpill.net, uh, to see this, see examples of this. And then either the bar is going to be very high, it's going to be very low, or it's not going to be existing at all. And this is very, very important because when people go to... The average sound healer, they will have a conversation with them. Whether you want, are you stressed out or you don't have enough energy? Or you have a lot of anxiety, that kind of thing. That's not even a question that you will find as a part of the voice print. You will find that as a part of my intake. And then the intake would then be verified by the voice print, which is pretty amazing. So I can have a, a person come to me and say, um, I had a person come last week, in fact, I mean, yes, about a week ago, and this individual was telling me issues that they had with water retention, and they were talking about uh, weight gain, obesity, blah, blah, blah. And I said to the person, I guarantee you, based on what you've told me, the frequencies from C to E are going to be all low. Hmm. And that's exactly what happened. Hmm. And so she was pretty blown away, like, how did I, even before I took the voice print, I knew that was going to happen. Because each one of the frequencies in the voice print corresponds to a certain energy uh, state, uh, emotional state, as well as a part of the physical body. And so this is what makes it very unique, because if you don't know what's happening with a person prior to working with them, you're just shooting in the dark. So I strongly believe in the assessment tool before there are any pro protocols that I carry out because it's then at that point in time that I'm very certain about what I'm doing as opposed to just guesswork. And one more thing I want to say about that is that once we do the voice prints, then we have all kinds of suggestions that a person can actually do practical experiential work that they can do with themselves, empowering themselves to actually bring those frequencies to balance. And we usually work with the first two, the two lowest frequencies. And the different type of practices that they can do is they can change their lifestyle, diet, lifestyle, nutrients for their body, juices. Of course, we can also do toning exercises with that, those frequencies that are very low, um, essential oils, uh, people who are into color therapy, there are certain colors that will help you to boost that frequency. And um, is there anything I left out? Also flower essences. So these are all the recommendations that a person can have as a, a part of their toolbox to help them to bring those frequencies into balance. So whatever's low needs to be brought up. Things that are too high in terms of the frequencies, those are the things that we usually indicate some type of 
inflammation, some type of congestion, some blockage of some type, uh, some infection of some type. So, you know, for instance, there are two frequencies that correspond to the right and the left kidney. If those are very high, that person has some type of issues with their kidneys. And actually, I had a person who was a homeopath who got her uh, voice print done, and I asked her immediately, I said, what, what's going on with your kidneys? And she was really surprised. She said, how in the world do you know I have in my kidneys? In this particular case, she had spent some time in some country in Africa, um, ended up contracting something there, ended up actually turning into cancer, and that cancer actually adversely affected her kidneys. So it was like right on the money. So, so anyway, these are, this is what makes me unique in terms of the sound therapy practice. Uh, the thing that also is very unique with me is that I come from the background of being an artist, obviously. I'm also a teacher. Right. And also these are practices you had asked me, how did I even get into this? It started many years ago when I started to study yoga. And then, of course, the yoga, we did everything from the pranayama, which is breathing exercises. Um, there were the mantras, you know, that, that you would chant. Uh, there were the postures that would help your health in terms of stretching. Uh, and then, of course, there was oming, you know, just chanting om, you know, all these kind of things. And I began to explore more and more how all of these things tied into, at least scientifically, how it can how, how these things obviously affect our health and well-being because everybody knows yoga one way or another helps people we know that meditation is something that helps people but it's becoming clearer and clearer why those things help and then what can we do on a broader uh, basis to help people to bring themselves back into a balance yeah so we know that uh, we know that yoga for example, has become very mainstream and popularized um, in in a, in a certain form, right? Like a lot of the the chanting and meditation. We even meditation is becoming more and more. You hear a, a lot of um, a lot of like social media influencers talking about meditation. A lot of life coaches talking about meditation. Um, in a lot of ways, this type. of of theor uh, therapy, this type of healing is is not as mainstream. Um, so I I'm curious about a few things because a lot of uh, a lot of listeners are maybe young people who are exploring different career possibilities, mm -hmm. and um, and so like we know that people can make a living as a yoga instructor. Um, it can be uh, tough to to get started doing something like that, especially if you're young and kind of right out of the gates. In some in some ways, that might be the time to do it when you don't have a whole lot of other responsibility. In other ways, it could be good to like to develop a sense of savings and some other things before you try to try to uh, you know make it full time as a yoga instructor. But what about sound healing? What about sound therapy? Are there people in the community? that are doing this as full-time work? Um, I guess this is question number one. And maybe question number two, what interest do you see in the community of, of younger people, let's say people under 30, that are getting into the profession? Well, first of all, there are scattered people who are able to do 
this on a full-time basis? Because people usually look at it, for instance, uh, gong baths, for instance. These are things that people will go to as a community, uh, a bunch of people, and, and they'll be uh, experiencing gongs. There used to mm-hmm. be a couple here that used to do that. And then they would take singing bowls, for instance, put them on your body. So there are those type of practices. Uh, there are also people who do more work with the technology. You know, okay. so for instance, they call it psychoacoustics. So there are people that do that as well. There are people, obviously, that incorporate uh, yoga and mantra because mantras actually are connected to yoga postures. Not many people know that. Not many people actually use it that way. Usually you have a yoga class and then you have a mantra class. And usually there are more people in the yoga class than the mantra class, but there are people gradually understanding the connection between those two things. Uh, However, even with situations such as, for instance, the gong bath, is that there are people that do that a one-size-fit-all. However, it doesn't necessarily fit everyone. And in fact, I've had people tell me they've gone to gong baths and they were stressed out, but they were afraid to say something because it appeared like they were going to be the oddball in the group. <laughs> sure, sure. So, so yes, there are people that do that. The thing that's very fortunate for me is that I also teach sound healing. Mm. I teach with a school in San Francisco. It's called uh, Globe Institute of Sound and Consciousness. And so I've been very fortunate because working with Globe, which is a very reputable sound healing program they have a certificate program and people might want to even look into that if they're interested in this field um but because of that i once again i had a lot of exposure there are a lot of people that know me even students come to me so it's the kind of thing that has allowed me to do pretty well in terms of full-time obviously i have a full-time job at kappa so right you know, sometimes during the summer, it's better. It's easier for me because my schedule is not so bogged down. You know, when mm-hmm. I go back to Kappa, you know, in addition to, I, I mentioned about my work as the, the director of the choirs there, I also have to coordinate everything in the program, you know, the schedules, the curriculum, so on and so forth. So it's very, very hard for me to do that on a full-time basis. I have a couple of days, for instance, I will work with people during the week if I have time. Um, But, yeah, to answer your question, there are people that are doing it at different levels. Another thing that I'm particularly interested in is working with practitioners who do not have a solid assessment tool. You know, people who do homeopathy on a full-time basis, people who do herbology on a full-time basis, you know, that kind of thing, acupuncture. Because then, of course, that allows a vehicle for assessment for people who don't have that tool, you know, so that's very important. So young people going into this uh, particular field would definitely benefit from places like Globe Institute. It's the largest school of its kind in this country and doing very, very well. Um, And having all of these practices going on the website and you will see all of these practices that I'm talking about in, in, in addition to more, you know, so you have sound tables you have sound chairs you know where people can just look back and sit back and have the frequencies hit them you know um, yeah and then there are also people um who do certain brainwave work you know in terms of people calming down uh there are people who do 
um, work with children and actually Globe Institute is actually working with students in sound therapy out in California. So this is something broader and broader. You're finding avenues, venues to do this work outside of just a one-on-one um, occasion. And especially during this period of COVID, this is a wonderful opportunity for a practice such as SoundPill. And the program that I use is called Voice Bio. It's also called Voice Analysis Harmony. That's something that can be done anywhere, anytime. And in fact, I just started working with a lady in, in the UK. And we've never met before, uh, I should say in person, but everything that we've done adheres to the same accuracy, the same reliability, the same validity that you would find if I did it with her in person. We'll get right back to my conversation with Gerald. I'm going to take just a moment and actually preview my next question for him. I believe that the work that Gerald does as a sound healer is a value that he holds very, very deep within his core. And I ask him about that. And in his response, you're going to hear just utter delight in his voice. And I believe that that comes from someone recognizing what it is that makes him who he is and what he does. And to be honest, it brings me delight too. I I think that when someone is really living into their calling, um, that pull of the universe to what they feel like they're meant to do, that it not only changes who they are and the joy that they experience, but also the joy that the people around them experience as well. And that is the type of uh, wonderful process that I've been able to go through with many, many performing arts students and young professionals as I've worked with them to help them figure out and really live into what their calling in life is and how that fits into the professional world of the performing arts industries. If you're someone who fits that description, who is perhaps exploring careers in music, theater, dance, you can learn more about this type of work by visiting artsboundcareerdesign.com. Now back to my conversation with Gerald. I remember meeting you for the first time, and as soon as you started speaking about your work as a sound healer, something changed in your eyes. Okay. <laughs> Something there. There was just kind of um, uh, a, just a light that turned on, mm-hmm. and so I'm curious. Would you describe your learning and coming into this field as as somewhat of a revelation for you in terms of kind of settling into a sense of of a calling? Well, thank you for asking that question. <laughs> okay, because this is this is an in depth question, and it's uh, it's it's very clear to me how I was led to this. Very, very clear. So I grew up in the black church okay. uh, in Michigan. My mom and dad were both from Louisiana, deep south, deep south as you can get. And one of the things that struck me when I was growing up was the music. So powerful. There was this powerful music that I know you would sing a song and you would see what happens, not only to you individually, but you would see collectively 
what will happen to everybody in the midst of that. So in, in the black tradition, so-called black tradition, you have a participation element that's very, very powerful. Mm-hmm. You know, this is not something that you stand apart from. You know, I know when I first went to a Catholic church and uh, I, you know, <laughs> I started to sing when I wasn't supposed to sing. And people were saying, well, you're not supposed to sing because the choir is singing. I said, what? No, everybody doesn't sing. You know, that, <laughs> that was very different for me. <laughs> uh, but so I grew up in that kind of tradition and I took all of that in. Um, and not only in church, but you know, I grew up in Michigan, 75 miles from Motown. So music was all in the air. It was a part of life. It was a part of the parties and the cookouts and the family reunions and the gatherings with your friends. And, you know, this is what it was. And, and I came from both a vocal and an instrumental background. So I took all of that and, and, this is the thing that I feel about music so often the way that it's taught in schools, which I think is backwards, because symbols are taught before you teach what the symbols represent. Right. And when you grow up in this tradition that's primarily oral, then you understand what the music is about before you even look at a piece of paper. Right. So this was very, very powerful for me. Uh, I started to take piano lessons when I was about eight years old, only for about a year. And then... Eventually, I had the blessing of when I first started traveling, when I was around 15 years old, and I got a chance to go to Europe. And at that point in time, I started becoming exposed to other music in other places. Here's the thing, that that background that I had in church was the foundation of my spirituality, which then started to lead me on in other directions and understanding not only spirituality from a religious standpoint, which I don't practice religion anymore, but it was the foundation to help me understand that there was this connection between music and spirituality. There was this connection between music and healing. There was, and you had all these traditions that I became eventually uh, more and more interested and fond of, and eventually led me to pursue a master's degree in ethnomusicology. Hmm. And when I started studying ethnomusicology, I, I was able to see even deeper into traditions outside of Western European music and music was integral to healing. It had a function. It was a part of life, not only from what I had experienced in my childhood, but I saw that this was something that was carried out all over the world. And then you eventually I started to practice yoga, as I said, and then I understood, you know, there were, uh, shamans said that would work with music and sound and that there were, all of these different traditions all over. Once again, it, whether it was in Latin America, if it was in Asia, whether it was in Africa, so on and so forth, Middle East, you began to see, I began to see that there was this connection. And that's when I started putting it all together. So the oneness that I carried out uh, in my life, you know, oneness meaning that it doesn't matter what a religious background person comes from, spiritual background, it doesn't matter what racial group, ethnicity you come from, it doesn't matter, uh, any of that is not important. You know, what's important is this, there's this oneness to seek this higher force and to utilize the tools that we have been given because when you talk about chanting, for instance, whether you are, are practicing the Holy Rosary, or, you know, you're doing mantras from India or from, from Asia. You know, it doesn't matter. 
You know, this is all, people use all incense. People have some kind of ritual that's connected to all of this. And music and sound have always been a part of it, whether you're talking Buddhist bells or gongs or this kind of thing. So this all kind of tied in for me to help me to the, to the place where I am now to, so what I'm doing makes sense. It makes total sense as to what I was curious about before. Now, as, as far as young people go, I would suggest, because this is something that makes me very unique, is that I suggest that they pursue music as the path that the educational system would have them pursue it, whether it be you know, in high school or whether it be in, in university, college, university. Yeah. Because you need to know all of the aspects of what makes that tradition what it is. If you're going to be a performer, you have to know what to do with it. You need to know how to get what's appropriate for that style or whatever it is you're pursuing. But then if you're interested in things like sound therapy and sound healing, you tie it together in a different way. And you have the knowledge that most people don't have. So people have a a set of gongs. I'm sorry, not gongs, but uh, crystal bowls. And so a person has a set of crystal bowls and they Okay, you can tone one of the crystal bowls and it can be a beautiful sound, but it may not be the sound that's needed. And you need to know, or you look at the voice print and you see that there's uh, imbalance in C sharp. If you haven't been trained in music, you don't know that's also D flat. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I had a person I did a, I spoke at the Sound Healing International Sound Healing Conference a couple of years ago in San Francisco. There was a woman who came to me. Uh, she got her voice print done. Her highest frequency was G. G happens to correspond to liver, bones, blood, other things as well. But there was truth. There was truth in that. Um, that analysis showed that there was some type of inflammation, something happening with her liver. She bought a crystal bowl that happened to be G. I suspect. The reason she got G is she was used to that frequency. And I'm going to explain one thing about the voice and how these frequencies come on this voice print in a second. But anyway, um, I said, you you just got a G. And she said, yeah, I said, that's the worst thing you can do. (laughs) (laughs) Because what happens is if she were to tone that G, knowing that her chart, her voice print already showed G was very high, it would have caused her harm. Hmm. Her lowest frequency happened to be D, as in dog, and I recommended that she get that. Right? Yeah. So here's the thing I want to say about the voice print. I'm kind of all over the place, I know, but this is something I needed to make sure to, to make clear. It's like if you take this program, Voice Bio, and you were to tone a crystal bowl, the only frequency that you would see on that voice print would be G. That would be Okay. It. You would not see any other frequency. You don't see any of the overtone or okay. Nothing. You don't see the overtones, nothing. You could also tone C or C sharp. Same thing. However, when you speak, this is where you see the full rainbow of frequencies that come up, which this is a big part of what it is that we're talking about is that what we speak actually has multiple frequencies. And there are people who can actually sing these frequencies as overtone singing, you know, for mm-hmm. instance, in Mongolia. And there's a woman on, on YouTube. I think she's from, she's from Eastern European, Europe somewhere. I'm not exactly sure. But anyway, um, so we speak and all of these frequencies come out, which is amazing because we don't hear ourselves that way. 
You know, we just hear a certain quality of sound that comes out, whether it is they're speaking in this voice tone or lower voice tone, or I'm on a voice tone, or higher voice tone, you know, it's still, there are multiple frequencies that come out. Another thing is we look in um, um, music training that we take with music theory and we find intervals. So we know that an interval from C up to G is a fifth. We know that we flip that and we go an interval uh, below that, that G from C to G would be G to C, which would turn into a fourth. Well, then in the sound therapy community, intervals actually have an impact. So whether it be an octave or whether it be a fifth or whether it be a combination of an octave with a fourth, fifth in the middle, so C, G, C, which you find a lot of in drone music. And drones are something that are very, very powerful all over the world. And you have instruments such as whether it be the sitar, whether it be the um, uh, the didgeridoo, which, you, of course, you can drone by circular breathing, yep. whether it be bagpipes, whether it be the tampura, these kind of instruments yep. can. And by the way, for your audience that doesn't know what a drone is, it's an interrupted sound, a continuous sound uh, that can be created. Actually, there are people that I hear can actually join with their voice. I can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> but... Uh, but anyway, so that's another tool, for instance. Drones are very, very powerful to put people in a kind of trance-like state. And then you use certain timbres. Now, timbres, once again, relate back to the overtone series. What makes the quality of a sound the sound that it makes? So what makes a trumpet different from a flute, which is a different from uh, a person's voice speaking like I am now, as opposed to if I'm speaking like this? And it's a different timbre. It's a different quality of sound but this is all as a result of what overtones or harmonics you find in the overtone series that will make that difference and even overtones so for instance you have the structure people can look up the overtone series if they don't know anything about it but the structure of the overtone you have even harmonics one three five and so forth and you have odd harmonics two uh, two, two, I uh, can't, you know, two, four, six. Isn't that amazing? You know, I teach school and I can't get my math together here. <laughs> so the odd ones are one, three, five, and so forth, and the evens are two, four, six, and so forth. So if you have odd harmonics, for instance, that's more for energizing the instruments that come under the odd harmonics. And there are programs that you can actually determine what the harmonics are of a particular instrument or even the voice. I know there are people who do the Estel practice with the voice. They actually go about seeing what the harmonics are in terms of the voice for different purposes as the voice is used. So that's one of the things that you find. um, And then in terms of the voice itself, so there are very powerful practices that we can use from breathing. In yoga, we call this pranayama, for instance. And whenever you breathe, you think about the breath usually as this exchange between oxygen and carbon dioxide. However, the breath itself is a sonic event. It's a white noise. Every time we breathe, we generate a white noise in our body, which includes all frequencies. Or you talk about uh, humming, or you talk about prayer, or you talk about mantra. 
things of these natures of how the voice can be used, not just for the sake of singing. And once again, this is what's different because in music therapy, it's calming down a person who's preparing for surgery, that kind of waking up from surgery, whatever the case may be, but it's usually based on a song that they're singing and they're playing a guitar or they're um, playing something along, or they might be singing without any musical instruments at all. Whereas in sound therapy, it's not necessarily important that you sound pretty. That's not the important thing. So a person who's chanting OM, once again, that's not for the purpose of, uh, of sounding good. Or you talk about a person who um, does a certain kind of, let's say, Hindu matches, that kind of thing. And then the voice tone might be you know, so you notice that that sound is not in the Western culture, the type of vocal sound that you want to get. You know, you go in your voice lesson and sing like that and your teacher's going to say what's wrong, <laughs> what's wrong with you, you know? <laughs> yeah, well, and sure. And, and we've, and, you know, like in so many other ways, Western culture has, has uplifted certain things uh, as, as superior to others, which, uh, which, you know, I think, I feel like a lot of people are kind of waking up to realize that, uh, that that's not necessarily the case. Yeah, so, you yeah. know, it's a, it's a tricky thing because, you know, it is important that you train in a certain tradition. Mm-hmm. You know, you think about a person who wants to be an opera singer or a choral singer. There's a certain sound within the realm of those traditions that you need to adhere to. You know, however, you know, you think about how much people are opening up more and more to world music, as it's called. You know, and whether world music can be somebody like Bob Marley. Bob Marley, by the way, is I, I've traveled to these 25 countries and every single country I've ever been in. There was Bob Marley's music. Right. I mean, every single, And it's it's almost become a game where I go somewhere and I wait to hear Bob Marley. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, people or you talk about certain traditions, you know, whether to be Asian um, traditions or, or Latin traditions or or different African traditions, you know, they approach music differently. Um, And in fact, this also goes back to what I was saying about tuning systems, because there are certain cultures don't have the same tuning system at all. But I tell you what's very, very interesting, and that is that the overtone series, embedded in the overtone series, is the pentatonic scale. And the pentatonic scale is the most pervasive scale used anywhere in the world. Now, when I'm talking about pentatonic, primarily the major pentatonic, so if you're into music and you're talking about the key of C, C, E, C, D, E, G, A, or minor pentatonic, C, E flat, F, G, B flat. Basically, those are the two pentatonic scales that you find anywhere on the planet. And, you know, whether it be, once again, the Asian cultures or even the indigenous people of this country. Yep. So... And then you combine with it with the fact that, that there are different tuning systems that are used. But the reason I bring up the pentatonic scale is because that actually is, once again, derived from the overtone series, which makes sense as to why that scale is so pervasive in the entire world. And even used in a lot of pop music. You know, there's one song that um, 
I like to point out by Taylor Swift, and it's called uh, Shake It Off. Mm-hmm. And it's based on the, on the major pentatonic, you know? And you yep. think about it, or you think about somebody like uh, Sam Cooke, don't know mess about history. That's, a, once again, a pentatonic scale. You know, you talk about Pharrell Williams' uh, I'm So Happy, happy. very yeah. popular song. Once again, it's primarily based on the... On the um, Pentatonic scale, and Stephen Schwartz even wrote a song uh, for Pocahontas, which is uh, based on that uh, "Colors of the Wind," which he cleverly used the pentatonic scale, knowing that the uh, Native Indigenous people use that scale primarily. I mean, the bridge, bridge part of it is a little bit different. So, so these are all kind of things that draw back once again to come back to to sound therapy. We have another uh, level, and that is the use of uh, binaural beats. So this is where we get into technology a little bit. So binaural beats are is a practice whereby you have a frequency in one ear. You do this with headphones. A frequency in another ear, and then the brain wave will uh, train to the difference in those pitches. Oh. So you would have a slightly different pitch in one ear than the other. The brain will, will entrain that third pitch, which will then entrain the brain into a certain brainwave state. And if you know, once again, people can do a little bit of research on brain waves, you know, whether you're talking about waking, you know, uh, you know, beta states, alpha states, theta, delta, uh, all the way to relaxation. So these are things that really will, uh, help people in terms of that aspect of of their uh, pursuit. It's very, very interesting to to look at it from that standpoint when people are within a tradition primarily focusing on one area. I have a story. There's a drummer I know, for instance, who... um, Parkinson's disease. He was actually diagnosed with Parkinson's. And when he spoke and he wasn't playing drums, he shook a lot. And he invited me over to his house to to do a voice print. And before we actually did the voice print, he was playing his drums and he had music playing like a loudspeaker. And he would play along with whatever the music was. Very, very interesting because, first of all, he had total control over the drumsticks in terms of his feet. There was no indication of any shaking, nothing like that. It was pretty wild. And he was very good. However, practically every song, and I'm talking about 10 songs, I I tuned in and I said, I want to listen to these songs that he's playing. These were by different artists wide spectrum of artists. Yeah. Practically every song that he played was in C. Mm-hmm. Practically everyone. I did his voice print. Guess what? C was pretty much off the charts. Hmm. Pretty much off the chart. Now, the reason I'm bringing this up is because he intuitively, first of all, knew what it was that he needed. The second part of it, which is very, very interesting, and I don't know if he ever followed up on this or not, his E was through the roof. And that's what I'm thinking about you and the, 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 uh, the E flat and the E natural. Through the roof, which also corresponds to teeth. Huh. 
as it turned out, this particular gentleman had mercury fillings. And when I saw that and we talked more and more about it, he told me that. I said, you know what? I think one of your issues might be that you have mercury in your system. Once again, I'm not a doctor. All I do is I interpret what the voice print tells me. Right. And I recommended to him, and I don't know if he ever did it or not, I recommended that you go and look at getting these mercury fillings out because I, I didn't see anything in terms of nervous system disorders because on a voice print, that's around uh, F-sharp and G. I didn't see any of that at all. So I don't know. You know, it's the kind of thing that sometimes it can be individual, sometimes it can be cultural. And why is it a particular culture plays or sings in the same key, you know, and that's beyond me. Right. That's an interesting thing to explore. Right. Yeah. Well, uh, I'm going to throw out one more question. Um, as someone who works, uh, your work at Kappa, as someone who works with a lot of high school artists mm -hmm. who are performers who are going off and presumably not all of them are going into the performing arts, but probably a handful of them, uh, or a, a decent number of them are, are interested in doing so. Um, what, what do you see as being the biggest need or what advice would you give for young people who are going off to further what they're doing in music or maybe theater? Okay. Uh, the first thing I want to say about Kappa is, believe it or not, about 80% of the students there do not pursue the arts. Okay. About 80%. And the reason I believe for that is that you have parents who are paying for college who are not strong believers unless these students are incredibly talented to pay for you know, college that they're going to major in music, okay. <laughs> you know, so that's the first thing I want to say about that for those. And that should not be, that's not said uh, to discourage anyone because you follow your path and there are students who leave Kappa and who do very, very well. Yes. You know, they do very well. So that's not an issue. If you, first of all, if you know that you are talented at the core and that you are a hard worker and that you're serious and you must be serious about every single aspect of your studies. And that can be hard when you, for instance, teach a middle school students about music theory or solfege. And that's not something that is very exciting. Right. It can be, it depends on how you teach it, but it's something that generally speaking, children are not excited about. But I always say to my students, trust the process. Trust the people who have come before you. Trust the people who are professionals and who know this path. And what you're doing now is very, very essential to what you're going to eventually be doing with this. Now, another aspect of that, especially when you're talking about middle school students, they're too young to really determine what it is that they want to do. And they sure. really are. They, this, they have this idea, they love to sing. Most children do love to sing. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not something you don't find too many children just don't like to sing. They might be a little odd at, at, at their neighborhood school because they like to sing and there are other people who don't see that as being such a cool thing. They want to sing what's on the radio, you know, and that's it. Which, of course, a child can continue to do and, and to continue to enjoy. I have a philosophy of music without borders. 
So I think children should still be very much engulfed into their traditions and their, you know, both their social traditions as well as their family traditions, and they yes. should continue to enjoy that. But I think that they also have to distinguish between what you do, for instance, at home with your friends and what you do to train for this path that you want to be pursuing. So that's the most important thing. Over and over again, students will come back and say, you know, I wish I had spent more time mm -hmm. learning theory because, you know, they, they are struggling now with theory. Or students come back and say, wow, I'm so happy that, that I really paid attention in theory. You know, so it's the kind of thing that they really have to be committed to. They have to realize that they are unique in themselves, continue to pursue what they pursue, and realize that there are a lot of people out here who are pursuing exactly the same thing. It's very competitive, and there has to be something about you that's unique. It has to be that you keep pursuing your uniqueness, who you are as an individual, along with understanding the path that you're following. So those are the things that I really would suggest people, uh, young people do is to take their studies very seriously, even though they can't see, they, they can't see the pot at the end of the rainbow. They just can't see it. And it's hard to see, you know, when you're young and you have so much happening academically and then on top of that musically. And of course, it's very, very unique when you look at uh, a school such as Kappa, which provides musical education, but then they might be at a school that's not like a Kappa, but they may still be provide a, provided a music education not on the same level. And it's up to them to, another thing I say to my students is don't let, don't let uh, school interfere, uh, don't let school interfere with your education. Right. Because school is only a part of your education and what you do if you have a passion, you have to pursue it way beyond what you're being taught on a daily, day-to-day -day basis. Otherwise, you're not going to enrich yourself to the level that you could. What you said about being absolutely unique and you know, trusting who you are as an individual and also trusting the process and the path of understanding a tradition, um, I think is a really difficult balance to strike. It is. It's, it's and, not uh, easy. Yeah. But it was, it never was easy. You know, that's just what it is. You know, who I am as an artist, as a musician, as an educator today was not who I was. I, the essence of who I was was always there, that I had a passion for this. And I knew if I had this passion, I needed to learn everything possible. Mm you know, everything possible, taking my tradition, my background, and being very open to what the universe was bringing to me in my daily walk as, as a human being. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for, for coming on and talking with us. It's been great. Thank you, Lee, for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thank you again to Gerald Savage for coming on the show. If you'd like to learn more about Gerald's work as a sound therapist, visit soundpill.net. If you are a performing arts student or young professional and would like to learn more about the career design process and how it can help you flourish in your career and life, visit artsboundcareerdesign.com. Chris Lidecker composes the music for the Artsbound podcast. I'm Lee Savalixic. Thanks for listening.